free are connected. I would. You're supposed to be leading, Linda. Did <laughs> if you would look at uh, some. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. In that particular psalm, where the writer and we do not know uh, who the writer was, but in verses five and eleven, you have the same statements. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. It's preceded, if you would look at those verses in, in chapter 42, um, verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. People have been asking me the question in an taunting way, uh, where is your God? And then he has that rephrase, um, uh, well, in, in verse 4, before he gets to that, he, he says during this time, he thinks back to the time when his life was joyful. And it just makes him sad that he doesn't, he's not enjoying that now. And then we have that phrase in verse 5. Uh, and it's like he's asking himself a question. Uh, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? And it sounds like he's getting ready to kind of take that next step. To be where he needs to be. But when you get to verse 6. He's right back down where he was. He talks about despair. He says. It's like your, your waves. Your breakers. Your waves are rolling over me. Like he's caught uh, at the seashore. And he's just standing there. Minding his own business. And this wave comes in. And just flattens him. And buries his face in the sand. Uh, he says. You know. Lord you've, you've, you've been my rock. How could you forget me? Verse 10, he talks about the shattering of his bones. And again, people calling out to him saying, you say you follow the Lord. Where is he? Where is he? And then that same phrase again from verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And he continues right back in 42. And where is he? He's asking God to vindicate him. He's pleading his case. He says, vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against the ungodly nation. O deliver me from this deceitful and unjust man. Again, he's, he's been riding that roller coaster and he's back down again. As I read this, you know how neat, how special it is when you're talking with people and you can understand what they're meaning by watching their face. You know, we, we communicate a whole lot more with how we look when we speak and the body language that we have. The words that we say can often have various meanings. All we've got is the words here. You know, all these, all we know is his statements, you know, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And in 42, I kind of hear him saying something like this because he's going up and down. <laughs> Why are you in despair, oh my soul? You know, you're, you're in trouble here. Hope in God. <laughs> Certainly doesn't seem like that right now is a worthwhile path to take. All of that changes in chapter 43. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 43, he says the exact same thing. But I think he says it in a different way, completely 
different way. And I would like for us to look at that because we all, I am sure all, everyone here has faced times when maybe you were just sad or down or, or gloomy, or maybe it was, it was one of those life-altering situations that you faced. Those can be really difficult, uh, really, really hard. But the way we deal with them, whether they're trivial or whether they're of a great magnitude, is the same. And we can see what the psalmist did, how he dealt with those types of a situation. So again, he's back to pleading with God. But this time it's different. Uh, the plea, he's, he's in despair. Stand up for me, Lord. Uh, and it's, the word is said with emphasis. It's, there's a passionate um, flavor to what he is saying when he says, vindicate me. I plead my case. Deliver me. Deliver me. Then the two questions. One, he feels like God is, has tossed him aside. Verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? That's a pretty strong term. It's not just, well, I don't have time for you today. Or, well, I'm busy. Can you check back with me later? It's, you're done. I don't want to have anything to do with you. That's how David feels at this particular point in time. His emotions got him very low. He says, he says you are the God of my strength. I know that's what, but, but why have you rejected me now? He continues on and asks another question. Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? That word mourning has, it's a very dark term, a very dark term. And at times it can be associated with like emotional gloom. That's what he's sensing. So he's in a pit. Now before when he got, yeah, hope in God, but it really didn't resonate within him. Before he gets to that, he does some very important things. This, this despair, this oppression that he, that he felt, this squeezing of life tightening up, tightening all around him. Uh, he's going to deal with it in a different way this time. And we see that in verses 3, 4, and 5. Uh, but, you know, people deal with varying degrees of sadness in different ways. Uh, again, not minimizing really hard things. Um, I was five years old when my, when my grandfather died, my mom's dad. We called him Papa. He's a neat guy for as much as I can remember from a five-year-old's point of view. Uh, my mom had a really hard time dealing with his death. Um, and when it continued, she went to a doctor... And the doctor gave her some medication to try to kind of get her over the edge. And it did. The unfortunate part of it is that that's the way she dealt with sadness for the next 29 years of her life. She was a prescription drug abuser. And home was not a happy place. Um, and sadly, after... 29 years of doing that at 56 years of age, she, not intentionally, but committed suicide with her drugs. And that was it. That's how she dealt with sadness. Now again, 
Death is hard. Death is hard. There's no easy way around it. But you can deal with it if you know if you know the Lord. It doesn't always take the pain away, but you can deal with it. When you read 42 and 43, the beginning of 43, can you grasp the depth of pain that the writer was experiencing? Pretty significant if you read the words that he used to describe what's going on in his life. But when we get to verse 3 here, we start to see, we get a glimpse. Why is what he says in verse 5, though the words are the same, the attitude with it is so completely different? Verse 40, verse 43. Uh, his pain led him to a search for truth. Uh, he says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. It's a cry for God to help him see his situation from God's perspective, not his own. He, when he looks at his own life and sees things from his perspective, he uses words like despair, rejected, forgotten. That's how he feels. And please remember, our feelings are neither right nor wrong. Our feelings are what they are. They come about when our body responds, when the, the hormones or whatever it is that go on, and you know, you get excited, you get scared, and you get that jolt through you. You didn't say, oh, I got to get this jolt. What can I do to do this? It just happens. It's what we do with our emotions that determines whether we're using them as the way God intended. And hard emotions, difficult emotions can be Difficult to deal with in God's way, but it is possible. We'll get to more of that when we get into verses 4 and 5. He says, show me your truth. I want to see life from your perspective. Please lead me. Lead me. And that word has the idea of, I am fully, I'm going to be fully dependent on you. I'm not just saying, you know, kind of go up there and I'll just kind of toddle along. So, no, I want to stay right with you. You lead. I am right behind you. Lead me, Lord, he says. Uh, He's going to the right place for truth, for perspective. He says, oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling place. That word, um, that dwelling place, is a word normally used to describe the tabernacle, which is where God resided, where people would meet with God. So he's not just saying, you know, I, I just want to, go to a, I want to go to a church building someplace and think, no, Lord, I want to meet with you. I want to know what you have to say in all of this. Uh, his heart's desire is not only to go God's way, but to go with God. Go God's way and go with, with God. And in any kind of situation we face, and particularly in the difficult times, that's where a believer needs to be. Uh, It's what the psalmist cried out in Psalm 19, the end of the chapter. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
It's not, you know, make it be acceptable to me. Do I want to be acceptable to you? I want my thoughts to be acceptable to you. Why are thoughts so important? Well, that's because that's where our words and our actions originate from. They originate from our thoughts. And if we're leaving our thoughts in an uncontrolled state, they will take us in all different ways. It took my mom in a very, a very devastating way that had major impacts on me and my three siblings, had impacts on her husband. When mom finally did die, um, I, well, actually, be, just before she died, um, in cleaning out the house and stuff because my dad had died uh, before her, found a, a diary he kept of what it was like living with my mother. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. But we need to go with God in his ways. So that's Psalm 19.14. Yes, and it all begins up here. This is where it begins. We need to... We need to think correctly. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. One that you know. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellence and anything, anything of excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's a present tense command, which means... This is where your thoughts should be. This is where you direct your thoughts in all of your waking hours every day. Dwell on these things. These are the things, these eight different descriptions are, these are the things that please God. If it is a command to think on these things, then that means it's possible. And we'd like to talk about how, how you do that. Well, you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It's just a short phrase. But it says the believers have the responsibility to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means that a person, a believer in Jesus Christ, has the ability to direct their thoughts wherever they want them to go. Now, our minds, our brains are pretty amazing. Did you know that everything that you've experienced in life is stored up there? From decades ago, it's there. I always kind of think of it like a, an office building where there are multiple floors and there's filing cabinets in each floor. Have you ever had a thing where it's like, Oh, what was that person's name? And this is from decades ago. And you're thinking and it's just not coming. And you get busy on with the rest of your day. But your brain is at work, getting to the right floor, searching out that right file. You have to open it up and going through the files. And here it is. And sometime, maybe it's hours later, it's all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yes, I remember now. Well, you weren't really even still thinking about it, but your mind was at work. It's an amazing, amazing organ that God has, has given to us. And so if everything that we experience somehow gets up in here, how do we put all the trash in the one set of files so that we don't think about it 
and replace it with other stuff. God says it's possible. It's part of taking your thoughts captive. What we invite into our mind, uh, uh, what we choose to allow our mind to dwell on. Because it says in Philippians 4, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. They need to be what we, what we continue to think about. Um, if we don't choose what thoughts we want to think about, where we want our minds to go, that vacuum will be filled by the world's ways of doing things. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. We have a sinfulness about us that doesn't get eradicated when we come to know the Lord. It's still with us, and it will lead us in a wrong direction if we just kind of go on, you know, just put it in neutral. And the world is changing drastically over the last five to ten years. Uh, I listened to a news report this week, and it was some important professor somewhere that talked about how the word pedophile has such a negative connotation, and it's disrespectful to those people that we should refer to them as map, map people, minor attracted people. That would make them feel better. That's what our world, that's where our world, that's the kind of stuff that all is, that we're being surrounded by more and more and more all the time. And that is the influences that come, whether we're realizing it or not. If we see it, we hear it, it's stored up in here. And it can come back at very inopportune times. Have you ever experienced that too? Right thinking. We're supposed to have right thinking. God, God gives it is a command so we know it can be done with his help. It can't be done by our own personal effort. It only can be done with, with the Lord's help. The first step is to realize that we need to take seriously the charge to take our thoughts, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Does this, what I'm thinking about, does this honor the Lord? If no, I need to take that captive and say, no, that's not what I'm going to do. Have you ever tried concentrating to stop thinking about something? Does that work? No, absolutely not. But the first step is to, is to put it off. Put it off. Uh, just got ahead of myself in one portion. You know, the, there are dire consequences for failing to take our thoughts captive. Because if we allow them to continue to ruminate in our mind, directing our thoughts and so on like that. Well, Romans 1 tells us what that's like. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 25 and 28. Paul talks about men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When we fail to take our thoughts captive, that's what we're doing. We're, we're allowing that which is unrighteous, that which is sinful and wrong, to just build up and build up, and it starts to smother what we know to be right. Men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. How did they do that? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. 
you get in a rut. And if it's a sinful rut and you continue on it, the rut gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And the longer a person waits to deal with the rut, to say, no, this is not right, sometimes it gets to the place where, I mean, it's so deep you're now in a canyon. And whose fault is that? It's the person's fault. God says they kept on that line and kept on that line and kept on that line. And it says, God, God gave them over. This, this is where you want to go. Feel, feel free to go. If we fail to pursue truth, pursuing the desires of the world will come by default. That's what will happen. And the mind will ultimately be blinded to God and his ways. So there's dire consequences that come if a believer fails to take seriously the commands that scripture has to say. Um, so here, um, where do we go in order to find out how to remove these thoughts? Please go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 17. And verses 17 and 18 really are uh, a rephrasing of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that we just read. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 17. Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. That's where they're at. A hard heart. He says, you used to know what that was like. That's how you lived your life. But like Paul says uh, over in Corinthians in describing some of the believers there at Corinth, he said, yes, after that long list of, of, of sinfulness that, that uh, w- was found in that city, he said, and such were some of you, but you have been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been redeemed. And it is when people come to know the Lord and understand what forgiveness of sin is all about and having a personal relationship with, with the Lord, that they now then have the ability to choose to do the things that they would have found impossible to do in the past. Since they became fixed in their sinful ways, look at verse 19. They became callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They enjoyed what they were doing. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. When a person comes to know the Lord, they don't get that bang on the head with a magic wand that all of a sudden makes them, makes them think right. Their eternity has changed. God now views them not as a sinner destined for hell, but views those people as, as a person who's In Christ, the righteousness of Christ is now what covers them. Like how it says in in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 60-something, where it talks about being clothed in the robe of righteousness. What a beautiful thought. That's Jesus' robe. Um, So what what he is saying here, you know, we need to learn some things. Uh, How many here went to kindergarten? 
Some of you just went right on to high school. Is that right? <laughs> what did you, a question, um, did, did you take a physics course? Did they teach you physics in kindergarten? Shlon did, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, how about geometry? Did you, did you read, um, you know, like um, Shakespeare? Why, why not? You're allowed to talk. This isn't really a hard question. If it really is that hard, maybe you should go back to kindergarten. <laughs> it's because you wouldn't be capable of understanding that. There, there takes a certain amount of growth and life experience and the development of your mind so you can begin to understand some things that go beyond this is blue, this is black, this is red, this is green. This is a triangle. This is a square. And even when it comes to actions, no, don't throw blocks at the kid next to you. We use those blocks to stack. You know, the stuff in Ephesians 4 here, this is kindergarten for believers. This is not high-powered, well, once I've been a Christian for 10 years, I can try to... This is kindergarten stuff that is on the, should be on the curriculum for everybody when they come to know Christ. There's other some of those things. This stuff is so powerful. This stuff is so important. It's the basics. It's the basics. So we all deal with our mind. We all have struggles in those areas. There's times when, like the writer here, you could be pretty down. I've, I've, I've been there. I've been there. Um, there are few people, I think, that have not been there to one degree or another. This stuff is vital. This stuff is absolutely important. So what do we need to learn? What do we need to learn? If indeed, verse 21, you have learned, you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, then in reference to your former manner of life, the way you used to do things, the way you used, and again, what you say, what you talk, you know, there's, there's people that were prolific with their, with their language in some of those words that we don't, I don't use. And they didn't, they didn't, although many times maybe they would have to oops, clamp their hand over their mouth. But what really started to change them is when as soon as they were getting ready to say something, a thought would, blast, crush, it would, would crash into their mind. Does that please the Lord? And it wasn't the corking of their own mouth. What was going on in their mind that began to change things? What are you supposed to do? You are in reference to your former way of life. You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Um, you set it aside. You put it off. That's the first step. You just put it off. When it comes in, you say, when that thought comes in, you say, no, that's not what I want to be in there. I don't want that to influence my mind. Uh, whenever a thought that wrong, when a thought when a thought 
comes into our mind that's wrong, maybe it's like, oh, the nerve of that guy. I didn't say it. Or just so everybody feels comfortable, the nerve of that lady. You, when you recognize that, even though you haven't said it, it's in your mind. And you say, okay, is that, is that how Jesus would have reacted to this kind of a situation? What does he say I ought to do? So that you recognize, you say, I don't want that thought to direct my thinking. You have, to, you have to put it off. You have to put it off. Because you can't really get ticked off at that person. Let them know how you feel. Corinthians says, 2 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has, has, has overtaken you, but such is this common to man. And God with the temptation... Um, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able, but always makes a way of escape. Did you catch that? Is that every time, whether it's in a teeny, teeny way or some really huge way, a believer is tempted to think, say, or do something that would go against what God says in his word, that's a temptation. And he says for every temptation, there is always a way of escape. There's always option B. And maybe even C, D, E, F, and G. God promises here that he will never place a believer in a place where the only option they have is to sin. And so if that's what we know, if that's what the word says, then regardless of how difficult this thought is in my mind, I can get rid of it. Because there's always another option there. So he says, he says put it off. Put it off. Lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in, in accordance with the lusts of the uh, lusts of the seed, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You be renewed. You choose to think differently. You choose to take advantage of the help God said I will give to you, so that you can replace this thought with that which pleases me. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. You need to, he says, you need to be renewed in the spirit. Of your, you need to evaluate what's, what, what's there. And when you conclude that it's not, it's not something that you want to be present in your mind, you have to replace it with something else. Have you ever tried to stop thinking about something by stop by thinking about how you want to stop thinking about it? Does it work? No. The only way thoughts in our mind are removed is when they are replaced with something else and it just shoves them out of the way. They end up getting pushed back into one of those file cabinets on the upper floor. Uh, so we need to replace it. Well, what do we replace it with? Well, we replace it with that which would honor, honor the Lord. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. Um, this is not something that a person does once and then their life is fine. It's something that needs to be done all the time, repeatedly throughout the day. Repeatedly all the time evaluating what's being, what we're hearing, what we're seeing. 
and as it registers in our mind, determining, is that something I want to be able to follow? Is that something that is good for me? Does that honor the Lord? And if it is not, then I need to, well, what, what should replace that? What does God say? What is his perspective on these things? And it, you forcibly put it in there, and the other, other goes away. Um, we do this in physical ways. Um, do I look very pastorish today? That wasn't good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Phil. I appreciate it. Check with me later. I have that money bag for you. And I can take this one off. And I can put another one on. Now I look different. Maybe I don't look very pastorish. Maybe I can even sort of look like somebody from the 30s. And yes, this does say the Eagles. But I look different now. I put off something and I put something else on. I replaced it. It would have looked ridiculous if I tried to put this on over my jacket. No, you have to make a choice, one or the other. And that's what God call, calls us to do with our, with our thoughts, is to evaluate them, evaluate them, and then choose to do that which would honor God. What is his perspective on that particular, on that particular issue? Well, let's go back to Psalm, or to, yes, to Psalm 43. And we begin to see how David went about doing this. Verse 3, you see that he was, he was, after having been gripped again with the direness of whatever this situation is, that we don't know what it was, his desire and his plea is, Lord, I want to know your perspective. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. I will follow whatever it is that you say. Let them bring me to your holy hill. I want to do things your way, and I want to go with you as I do do these things. Verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. His desire to search for truth led him to believe something and to choose to do something. What did he choose to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. What was the altar? The altar was a place of sacrifice where you gave it to God. He said, I'm, I'm going to the altar. I'm yours. I will do whatever it is that you want for me to do. Notice it all centers around the Lord. How many times do you see the word God in that one verse? This is kindergarten stuff now. Four, thank you. Thank you. You graduated. Four, yes, it's all, his focus is now moved off of his issue, whatever, how distressing they were. Think back to the words that he said in verse, in chapter 42, in the beginning of 43. But now God and his ways begin to fill his mind and he makes choices to what to do. He says, this is what I'm going to think. This is what I am going to do. And I shall praise you, O God. His despair, words of despair, turned into words of praise. It's not a personal pep rally, though, this time. Here's how I, here's how I would read verse 5. He's talking, he's been so difficult, verses 1 and 2. 
Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. It's a cry of victory. Same words, but it's spoken differently. Why? Because he responded to his, his difficult situation in faith. He had knowledge. I know God has probably seen him in his work in his life numerous times. He knew these things, but he came to believe them. Yes, no, this is true. I can rest in this. This is where the help will come from. Knowledge that's true, believing that. Because it doesn't matter how hard you believe in something that's not true. It's not going to be true, and it's not going to help you if it's not true. So it has to be knowledge that's true, and you believe it, and then you take steps of trust, demonstrating that what you believe. And they're only going to be, as those steps are only successful, will only be successful if what you believe really is true. And when you put those together, knowledge that is true, belief, and steps of trust, Hebrews says, that is, that is what faith is all about. The faith is rewarded, and you see that reward in verse 5. Now it's a statement of praise. It's no longer one of despair or returning despair as it had been, had been before. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe what? That he is and he will reward. And what is the step of action you need to take if you want to be rewarded? You seek. Knowledge that's true. Belief. Steps of trust. That equals faith. You leave any one of those three things out, and faith is meaningless. There's, there have been times, and I'm thinking of a particular one, a number of years ago, when I, I was really down. Uh, it was really, really hard. Um, and I don't remember how I got connected to this verse, whether it was something I heard or happened to read it. I, I don't really remember where it was or how it was, but it was Psalm sixty-eight, nineteen. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears your burden, the God who is our salvation. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. I would repeat that to myself over and over again when I would start to feel myself getting sucked back in. Am I going to see my kids grow up and graduate from college? Am I going to, you know, all the what-ifs that had me really down. 
Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. I was trying to shove out these other thoughts. I wasn't at the point, at that particular point in time, I was feeling so low. It wasn't, well, well Lord, I know you're in control. And even if, I, even if I do die and I don't see my kids graduate, that's going to be okay. I wasn't there. I was still struggling with how I was feeling. And I just said, Lord, this is my burden and you can bear it. You're the God who saved me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to trust you. And then maybe I had to do it five minutes later again. Where when a thought comes in that is dishonoring to the Lord or wouldn't please him, you say, okay, that I capture that thought and I make sure that, and I, and I can't stop thinking about it, but I can replace it. And as I replace it, my mind sends it upstairs to the top story and in the back corner in the last file in the filing cabinet. Unless I look for it long enough and I can bring that out and I can start thinking about it again, which is possible too. But we see David facing unbelievably, not David, whoever was the writer, terribly difficult situations where he was really, really down. And how did he you know, he didn't listen to a, 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 a pick-me-up message. He said, I need to, what does God say about all of this? If I stay wallowing in the position that I'm in, I'm just going to be thinking about it from the world's, with the world's perspective. What, what does God want me to do with this right now? What is his perspective on it? And I use that to put it in and get it, Get the other out of the way. And what does David end up saying? <laughs> I don't have to be in despair. I don't have to be disturbed. I may feel that way, but what do I know is true? Because in God I can put my hope. And I will praise him. Praise him again. For he is my help. He is my help. Um... 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 1, verse 3, he challenges the readers and he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Just other words of saying the same thing we've been talking about here. Don't take control of your thoughts. Take control of your mind. Replace what is junk and fill it with what is good. And you don't fill it with what is good by sleeping on your Bible. It doesn't osmose. You need to really decide to go after it and find out what it has to say and do it regularly. And as, as the years go on, you find yourself understanding more and more of what God says. But you learn the lesson of how to do that in kindergarten. In God's kindergarten. At least that's where we should be learning it. But I know that for some people, at least ones that I've counseled, they must have been absent the day when it was talked about. And it's really a shame.
It really is a shame. It doesn't make problems go away. But changes the perspective for what God says. This is what reality is. It's not what you feel that's the reality. It's what I'm telling you is the reality, and you can count on it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your word is so practical, and you know us inside and out. You know when we rise up. You know when we lie down. You know everything about us, and you've given us instructions from your word as to how we go about living such a life that honors you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give each of us an ever-growing desire to know more and more as to how you would have for us to live and to make choices, Lord, that honor you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.